Did you ever wonder about gardening and agriculture in Canada before colonization? I grew up not really thinking about it, but there are a number of projects across the country that are changing the way people understand Aboriginal practices. One of those projects is the first federal Indigenous demonstration garden, which opened in Summerlin, B.C. last year. I talked to the instigator of the project, Mehdi Sharifi, and one of two interns, Dana Johnson, about their experience. I'm a research scientist with Agriculture Agri-Food Canada, and the research station is located at the Summerland. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started thinking about establishing an indigenous garden from uh, 2018. We got approved for 2019, but then the COVID hit and all the other complications. And mm-hmm. last year in March, we started, and Dana was one of my students. Uh, the other student was Kyle, his name. Uh, so these two, and with the plan that we had and the budget that I had for the projects, uh, helped in establishing the, the garden at the station. <laughs> this year is the second year of the garden. So the garden is already already there. I'm a graduate of the UVic Environmental Studies program with a Bachelor of Science. Why don't we start out by you telling me what's in the gardens? Dana, do you want to tell me a bit about it? Yeah, one of the main goals for selecting the plants in the garden was to have the highest biodiversity that we could fit within the space. Um, so primarily, the canopy is three large ponderosa pines, and it's quite a xeric space, like it's quite dry. So some of the species that we selected are really well suited to that kind of a habitat. So around the border of the garden, we have Oregon grape, as well as snowberry. We also have some kinnikinick berry, choke cherry, mountain sage, rabbit brush, antelope brush, yarrow, scarlet gilia, goldenrod, penstemon. And those are just some of the ones we selected, again, because of their, they're really well suited to a dry habitat. And our, our main crops, if you want to call them crops, our main harvests. Our main harvests are the huckleberry, which is the vaccinium membranaceum, mm-hmm. as well as soapberry, which is Shepardia canadensis. We also have Saskatoon berry. We also have um, wild strawberries growing. We have wood rose. We have some wild buckwheat. The space was not really cultivated at all, and mm-hmm. um, it, was, it was pretty bare. There's some pineapple weed there. Um, as well as um, the native cactus. There was some biodiversity present and we just set some zones up, keeping it quite a xeric space for rabbit brush, for antelope brush, mm-hmm. et cetera, for goldenrod, and then other spaces for a variety of berries. Oh, and we also have some mock orange that is just, just winding up the arbor. Mm-hmm. Really beautiful, really, really good for pollinators. A lot of these species were also selected because they're an incredible habitat for so many pollinators, especially native pollinators. And we also kept quite a bit of the space quite sandy um, for those species and also for insect species that enjoy the sandy loam as their habitat as well, like leafcutter bees and some native parasitoid wasps, that sort of thing. It's clear that Dana knows these plants she's dealing with. As for me, less so. But you can almost hear a bit of awe in her voice as she talks about them. I've looked up a lot of these plants Antelope brush is a kind of rangy shrub with small yellow blooms that is really quite beautiful in its own wild way. Oregon grape is a shrub that looks a little like holly. It blooms with yellow flowers that turn into purple grapey things, which are eaten by some people but are very tart. 
and Scarlet Gilia we will hear about from Dana in a bit. It's a fiery bloom that takes your breath away. How big is the space? It's like almost like 10 meter per like five meter uh, length. So it, it is like a considerable size for a garden. I think it's a good size. Yeah, it was um, it was a, a touch smaller when we began. Yeah. Um, but within the process, we realized we could, um, if we moved the fence a little bit, we'd get a little bit more space. So uh, another uh, student at the time that was working on the project was Kyle Clark. Clark. Clark, thank you. So Kyle Clark was the other student um, who's Métis, um, who's working on the project as well. Um, and we, I think we were originally just going to have like a circle in the middle of this space and, and, and kind of grow things within that. And we went way out of bounds with that. We, we made big pathways. We expanded the size. We went out as far as we could. We made, we put plants around the border. And it's at the Summerlin Research Station. Yeah, station. Yeah. Where is that? It is located in Summerland, which is the interior BC in the central Okanagan Valley. Which is um, Silk's territory, um, Silk's Okanagan territory, and it's overlooking beautiful Okanagan Lake. It's it's incredibly gorgeous. Yeah, you grew up there, didn't you, Dana? Yeah, born and raised. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that was a big reason why I was so excited to work on the project. These were a lot of species that I grew up with and didn't necessarily like know intimately growing up. And then um, having then gained an education in, in, in botany and permaculture and traditional land management systems, it was really exciting to come back and get to establish those those plants and like select those species and like get to know the space. And Wow, I can really understand Dana's feelings concerning learning about the plants you grew up with as an adult from a different perspective. My family used to go camping on the shores of Lake Manitoba when I was a kid, and I became intimately aware of wild roses and poplars and, well, less intimately, poison ivy. One time we found an entire field of wood lilies near the turnoff. I didn't know the names then, but whenever I find one I get excited. Some are native, like harebells, while others are not, like toad flax, but they all take me back. I think one of the things that made it a, the garden space a success was that Kyle and I had a lot of freedom mm-hmm. um, in, in choosing the way that the space was laid out in the species selection and a lot of support in everything that we were doing. So you guys had a, you had a lot of vision and you made a, uh, what was your involvement in the whole thing? You oversaw it or you, you originated it, didn't you? Yes. So in our department, there was a call back in 2018 and that kind of initiative, they called Idea Farm. So they asked the employees that if they have any idea that can help promoting the health and promoting like something new in the department, mm-hmm. uh, we put the proposal. So I put a small proposal about the garden and I have some experience working with the indigenous community and native plant species before that. So I put the proposal and it reviewed and got accepted and uh, the funding for that got approved. So we received the funding and then we delayed it for a couple of years uh, Mm -hmm. until Dana and Kyle started the project uh, in March 2021. And there was like some objectives behind the projects. So the major objectives that we have was to enhance the communication and collaboration between, between our department, which is Agriculture Agri-Food Canada, 
and the indigenous communities in the region. We also we wanted to uh, enhance the cultural awareness and the recognition in Canada. We wanted to pr uh, promote the preservation and the knowledge of these indigenous uh, food plants. And we wanted also, we had some education component in mind that we wanted the people to come and to see the plants so it's more like a demonstration garden, it's not research. Mm -hmm. We wanted people to see that, to see the science, to learn about the plant, the importance of the plant for the uh, Silk uh, Okanagan nation uh, uh, or indigenous people of the region. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was that, that education component also uh, important for us. And how is the education component going? Are people coming and visiting to see? Yes, I received, I just had visitors this morning uh, oh, mm -hmm. from uh, UBC uh, and also from West Bank First Nation, they came and they had a tour of the garden. And many people there are interested either in Canada different stations uh, because that was a pilot uh, project and they wanted to learn from this project and establish it. So we have people from uh, Ontario in London, Ontario Research Station. They would they are developing a garden, so we send them the information that we have. Thanks to Kyle and Dana, they prepared a very nice uh, report on the project. So we have all these different steps laid mm -hmm. out. Um, so that can help people who are interested in developing their garden to use that information and learn from that. And West Bank First Nation this morning, so they asked me to send them uh, also a copy of that report so they can, because they're working on with these indigenous plants for their school. Uh, same thing happened with the school with the Seabird Island in Agassiz, British Columbia. Mm -hmm. So many people, they showing interest, they come visit, they want to learn more about it, and they ask for more information. I can only imagine being taken to a place like this when I was in school. Kids today have it made. What makes this an Indigenous garden? Oh, that's a great question. I, I want to start off by saying that I am not Indigenous to the Silk Okanagan region. Um, I am Indigenous. I'm Gitsan and other nations on my on my mom's side. I was born and raised in the Okanagan Territory, and I do have a relationship with um, some nation members for sure. But one of the things that we really would have loved to incorporate within this garden was during the process of building it, we would hope to have community members. But the year that we were doing it, 2021, as we know, this was a year we were dealing with a pandemic. There was also forest fires raging across the Okanagan. Communities were really stretched thin. And so this was not a time to be asking for assistance or participation in this really wonderful, wonderful project. It just like mm -hmm. wasn't the time. But once the gap garden was established, Mehdi called me back to, to join the project again to commission some art pieces from two really, really brilliant artists. One was Les Lewis, who's a, um, a carver among many other things. He's, he's a very talented artist to create um, a story pole, which depicts all of the, in a, in a pictograph kind of style, which is inspired by pictographs that are found in the region from his ancestors. So there was the, the story pole. And then also we had a sign made, a welcome sign that's in in Silkchen, the, the, the language of the Silk Okanagan people. Then we also had Cody Lacoy, who is uh, a, an amazing graphic artist, create um, designs of each, like a, a beautiful, they're really beautiful illustrations, really beautiful illustrations of each of the really staple Indigenous food plants in the garden. And then those were accompanied with translations of those plants in Insulk Chen, as well as French and in English, as well as the um, binomial nomenclature in Latin. I think what makes this an Indigenous garden is that we are growing entirely Indigenous food plants or plants native to 
to the region that provide harvest and also habitat for non-human kin, so pollinators as well as birds, etc. Just so so many things. It's it's on Silk's territory. So yeah, and we're really hopeful too that once this garden is established, that it will become a seed bank for other projects as well. That that we can again, it is a demonstration garden for sure, but mm-hmm. that it will be able to provide seed or cuttings, etc., so that it can expand and these plants can continue to grow in the region that they've lived in and grown in and thrived in and evolved in for tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of years. Maybe you were telling me uh, earlier about your involvement in indigenous gardening in the past. I moved in 2016 from Ontario, Peterborough, Ontario, to uh, Okanagan. When I was in Ontario, I was a faculty at Trent University School of Environment. Mm -hmm. And I had the exposure to the indigenous plants at at that time. So we were working on the Three Sisters. Uh, We had a project that we planted Three Sisters. And we had connection with the uh, local communities. They came and visit and they had ceremonies there. So I had some background and I had always interested in the indigenous culture as well as native plant species. When I moved to Okanagan's, uh, that was one of my passions and I talked to our manager and she encouraged me to follow up with that. And I managed to submit a proposal and get funding for an uh, indigenous food workshop indigenous food systems workshop and invited people from across Canada, from the government, from the indigenous communities, as well as from the universities, the scholars. And we had a day and a half workshop in uh, in Vancouver. And in that workshop, we come up with what needs to be done because uh, up to that time, the involvement of the Agriculture Agri-Food Canada with the indigenous communities and also indigenous plants was very limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that workshop, we argued that indigenous peoples, they actively manage the plants in order to get uh, and it had extremely, it was important in their health of the community. We also argued that that was like the management of these plants was active. It was not a passive just right. gathering. And for that reason, that could be part of the agriculture and we are responsible in providing services to the communities and researching these plants and then based on the need and priorities of the communities. I just want to underline what Mehdi is saying here. He says, the management of these plants was active. It was not just passive gathering. The Indigenous people practiced agriculture. Hunter-gatherer societies did hunt, and they did gather, but they worked to gather plants in certain areas. They saved seeds. They cultivated. And that was a start of kind of getting involved with the whole Indigenous food system. So I had one big project, Indigenous Food System, approved in 2019 for three years. And I have a recent one that approved for this year and next year. So we're working with three communities in BC on some of these important or key cultural plant species. And that was the background that uh, kind of I had exposure to the culture and also to the native plants. And Mm -hmm. I thought having these indigenous garden would be a nice demonstration for the Canada people at the station, but also for the visitors, but also for the people in different, uh, in the communities and students from the schools to see these plants. When they can see them, they get interested. They ask for more information. 
And it's kind of recognition of the culture as well as some learning opportunity to learn about these plants and see how important these plants were in the Silk Okanagan nation culture. Mehdi is from Iran. He has a PhD in soil science, so he really knows his stuff. It's awesome that he's chosen Canada as his place of further study. Sometimes it takes an outsider, a newcomer, to see what's right under our noses. Maybe I'm overstating it. Probably a great number of people knew before that some groups of Indigenous people were using agriculture to sustain themselves. But you can be sure that Mehdi was in the crowd that made the case for the Government of Canada to study and understand it as part of our collective history and a valuable contributor to our future. In laying out the gardens, you mentioned a circle to begin with. What is the layout plan to the garden? So primarily for the garden, we needed to have a space for the huckleberries and for the soap berries. So that was our main priority. That's quite central to the garden. As well, we wanted to make sure that there was a barrier between the road Mm -hmm. and the other spaces within the garden just to keep dust out and to delineate the space that was. This is where the native plant garden begins. As well, there was also a space that was just the driest space within the whole garden area. And so we were making sure that that wasn't a hurdle. That was more of like a, we were really excited about that because that meant that we could plant all of these species that really need xeric area and like a lot of sun. And it was also, we wanted to make sure that it was easy to walk through, easy to see all of the plants. We made sure that the path was gentle and winding and also wide enough for for wheelchairs as well as we wanted to have a space where people could come and just sit and enjoy and look at the garden and also enjoy the incredible view. So we have a little picnic area, as well as an arch that delineates the entrance with a welcome sign that's in in Silkchen that says, you are welcome here. The design was really, we spent a lot of time, Kyle and I, just mm-hmm. sitting in the space and observing what are the species that are already present. Uh, one of the pine canopy like at, at its peak, like when do we get the most shade? Where do we get the most shade? Where do we not get any shade? What are the insect species that are present? What are some challenges that we need to overcome in terms of trying to establish these species? Um, the huckleberries tend to be at a bit of a higher elevation. And so what do we need to make those species thrive here? And so that included a shade net that included um, a pretty generous watering system. Shade net watering system? Well, it's a demonstration garden, and I suppose it's for demonstrating the plants, not the vagaries of the weather. That's fair, but I asked. Oh, just the just irrigation. We just have we have different kinds of irrigation in the mm-hmm. space. So, so species that need a lot more irrigation. Um, again, because it's in such it's such a hot, dry area, those were prioritized to be under the most shade, um, directly underneath the pine, under the canopy. And then those species that needed a lot more sun and didn't need as much water and thrive in a more xeric environment got different kinds of irrigation. So we had a the species that need a lot more water and a drip irrigation system for the species that need a bit more of a xeric environment. Dana paints a gorgeous picture of this garden. I'm eager to hear more, but we need to take a break to find out what the folks are doing at head office. And we'll be back in just a minute. Is the garden strictly a demonstration of the types of plants or is it in some other ways about the way that they were used in agriculture in the past? So, so historically, these species, their cultivation, their harvest, the care, the spread of these species, this was happening on, on, a, on an ecosystem, wide scale landscape, areas that you would winter, areas you would summer, really, really complex, community based. And again, this is 
pre-colonization and that would be before you know the development of more permanent structures as we have now so this garden it's it's not a um, replica of any existing ecosystem in the sense Mm -hmm. of it's not at the scale that it once was historically and in many areas of the Okanagan still is another thing that that is dissimilar is that we're not using fire Mm-hmm. So fire management is is a huge part of these ecosystems um, to ensure that there is carbon and nutrients cycled back in into the soil to keep spaces from going into later stages of succession. So maintaining either meadow spaces, killing off shoots of invasive plants, etc. As well as I know Medi has been doing lots of work on yellow avalanche lily, which if you want the bulb to get larger, which is the starch, which is a staple crop. You need to harvest it. You need to have selection processes. You need to, it's a very, it's a very labor intensive, very methodical. There's quite the science to um, ensuring that these plants grow to a certain size, are healthy, laid out in certain spaces and are protected from stages of succession. So this is strictly a demonstration garden in the sense that it's, it's not reflective of an ecosystem at a, at a large enough scale, I think. However, we are showing what is possible even within a, a really small scale to be having these species present in that space and also that they can provide a really incredible harvest these species in order to thrive, especially in the contemporary, but always, they've always needed people to cultivate them and to be present in their evolution, including fire management, including selection of individuals, including monitoring for diseases, protecting from succession, etc. So yeah, there's there's no real there's no real space like it in the sense that it's it's trying to represent all of these quite disparate ecosystems in this in this small space, but it is possible. The garden I just visited it the other day. Um, I'm living in Victoria currently, but my family is living in the Okanagan when I was passing through and it's thriving. It's doing really wonderful. So many different species are there. We're going to keep establishing more species there. And yeah, just it's I think it's as much a demonstration of this way that these plants can persist in these ecosystems, thrive in these ecosystems, as well as the responsibility that we have as people to protect these species and to include them within our our garden spaces, within our restoration plans. And yeah, and for um, more research stations, which they are to to take up the similar projects to, again, acknowledge, as Mehdi was saying, that these are species that require cultivation. They are, this is a form of of agriculture. Dana Johnson for Prime Minister. Wow, this woman is in her early 20s. I'm in my mid-50s. I can't string words together in complete sentences like she does. Seriously, this is all written out and spoken into a microphone several times and then edited to get it right. Dana just says what she knows. What is a yellow avalanche lily? So it is one of the species of the lilies and the bulbs at some point of the time before colonization, it was a stable food for interior BC. Is it from lilium? Is it the genus lilium? Yes. And it's harvested, the the bulbs uh, harvested in the large amounts. And it was a good source of starch, especially they store it uh, for the winter time and they use it all through the winter, people. I saw in the literature that they said a family, so at a certain time of the year, because they have a very short period of time that they grow. So as soon as the snow melts, they already start growing Mm -hmm. and then they go to the flower. And then when the flower sinus, then it's the time to harvest them. 
Mm-hmm. And it was like the harvest time depends on the elevation. It could be different time uh, during the summer. So I read that if a, a family uh, would, would go for the harvest and they can collect between the 20 pounds, sometimes up to like 90 pounds of these tubers or, or bulbs. And then they dry it, they store it, they use it in different ways. And uh, they use it during the winter. So a very important source of food and they would trade it with the coastal region. In coastal region, camas was a very common species of the lilies, uh, but it wouldn't, it needed a more uh, in meadow area and more humidity. So they would have traded these uh, avalanche daily bulbs with the uh, camas with the First Nations in the coastal region. So extremely important, important plant. Yellow avalanche lily is Erythronium grandiflorum and Camas lily, Camassia quamish. Neither is in the species Lilium, but both are in the lily family. In Googling avalanche lily, I found Jack Green on the website wildaboututah.com tells that bears like the avalanche lily too, and they will dig up the bulbs and leave them in the sun for a few days to kind of cook them. He says there are First Nations legends about learning to cook the bulbs from watching the bears, and it makes them sweeter. He also quotes another naturalist, Rick Bass, who says... Sometimes the yellow pollen gets caught on the fur and snouts of the great golden bears as they grub and push through the lily fields, pollinating other lilies in this manner. In this crude fashion, they are farmers of a kind, nurturing and expanding one of the crops that first meets them each year. You could call it agriculture, cultivation, but again, for for every nation, for even each family within nations, there would be different styles of cultivation and ways of harvesting and preserving, et cetera, incredibly diverse, like all across Canada, um, even just within, within a nation, within British Columbia, the diversity is, is incredible. It's as diverse, if not more diverse than the species themselves. If you're viewing forms of cultivation or agriculture, that's very different from just straight rows over many, many acres of monoculture, just one species. Some folks might not, maybe not have that sense that, oh, that that is a form of cultivation, that is a form of agriculture. I I understand there was a misconception and there continues to be misconceptions that, Mm -hmm. again, as Mehdi was saying, oh, it was passive, oh, it's just just gathering when no, it's, it was, it was extremely technical, laborious. Mm-hmm. These plants also provide tools for tool making. This knowledge passed down through, through families over generations and protected spaces. Again, using fire, fire suppression has been a huge consequence of colonization right. where you don't burn spaces that mm-hmm. you view, oh, a, a late succession full pine forest is is the apex of the ecosystem here when in reality it's a result of neglect it's a result of a misunderstanding of the dynamics of the ecosystem of how important people are how important the relationships with these plants is to the health of people to the health of the plants to the health of the ecosystem to the health of non-human kin it's critical and i think that again the suppression of people um, has led to the destruction of these habitats has led to um, the changing dynamics that we see today that we really need to reckon with. And reckoning with it is a recognition that Indigenous peoples need to be involved in the restoration of these spaces and that these plants need to be established as much as they can be across this ecosystem 
Because if they aren't, then you're going to see huge forest fires. You're going to see so, so many consequences Mm -hmm. of a lack of understanding of how to maintain this ecosystem. I am not an expert on that. I am, I'm purely speaking from what I've heard from community members, from, from reading that I've done, which we, of course, did a lot of research and incorporated that Mm -hmm. um, into our garden. Um, And it's, which is very small, but very mighty in our hope that it does inspire like-minded projects across across Canada and, and anywhere that people have the understanding of how important it is to cultivate these species mm-hmm. and, and, and that they do need to be cultivated. There is a lot of information online, if you dig for it, about First Nations' use of fire for many purposes. They used it to manage regeneration of berries and medicinal plants, to create grazing lands for animals they hunted, to manage buildup of combustible materials in the area, and to manage pests, among other things. Various peoples used fire for various reasons, all based on living in an area for thousands of years. They were, and in many cases still are, experts. When Europeans came to the continent, they thought they knew better about how to control and use fire, and it had disastrous effects sometimes. One example was the famed Matheson Lake Fire of July 1916 in Ontario, which killed 223 people and decimated 2,000 square kilometers of land. And it was started by some settlers in a slash-and-burn effort. Today, government policymakers are finally talking to and listening to Indigenous experts on how to use fire in a controlled and healthy way. If we're looking at the evolution of the food system from the past to now, in one end of the spectrum, we have the gathering, hunting and gathering and as a way of like uh, collecting food. And one end of the spectrum, we have the indus- industrial agriculture. So uh, hunting and gathering, it was more like passive, kind of finding food from the nature. In between these two, between the domestication and between the hunting gathering, we have these period of time that people actively were managing. And this is what the indigenous people were were doing. Uh, Mm -hmm. They actively managed these patches of the native uh, plant species. And for example, we have uh, in the literature that one community was in charge of like a certain patch of food and they will take care of that. They do coppicing, which is like the, something similar to the pruning. And uh, they will do tilling. They will do um, uh, removing the weeds and maintaining that, that block or that patch of the native species and use it for food. So it was what is very important is that active management of the plants and then selecting the plants that had better quality or larger fruits or sweeter fruits uh, over the ones that they weren't and, and use those ones. So uh, that is why it comes into the spectrum of the agriculture and active management of the plant species. I often wondered about natural selection, or I guess natural human selection of species of plants. Take the Brassica oleracea plant, which in its plainest state is wild cabbage with a very loose kind of form. You can understand how people went from this loose wild cabbage to developing kale, and you can understand how from there they developed more modern cabbage. But who said, hey, you know what would be good if we got the flowers of this to grow really big and make broccoli and cauliflower. It took about 500 years to go from kale to cabbage, 
which developed around the first century CE, and another 500 years to develop cauliflower and broccoli. I guess people, given centuries, are ingenious. What is soapberry? Uh, so soapberry is, is one of the native plant species in this region. Uh, in, in the Okanagan, they call it soapberry, uh, but in uh, prairies, they call it buffaloberry. Oh, okay. It has, it has different names. It is very important in terms of the ecology. It can be food for the birds, especially for the bear, uh, grizzly bears, black bears. And it was also uh, very important uh, berries in the diet of the indigenous people in different regions. Mm-hmm. It has a very bitter taste, but they use the, they made a, a mix with that and they call it Indian ice cream. Uh, maybe Dana has a, a little bit more information about that, but it's, it's very important. So especially for the bears, because these are in the lower elevation compared to the black huckleberries, the bears start feeding on, on these plants and soapberries first. And then when the soapberry berries finish, then they start going in the higher elevation and using uh, black huckleberries. It's very nutritious. We did some uh, evaluation of the berries in terms of the nutritional profile. Uh, it has a different kind of sugars in that compared to the other fruits that we are using. Also a high level of vitamin C and other antioxidants. Colloquially, it's known as soapberry or foam, a foam berry sometimes because it does foam up mm-hmm. to make, again, colloquially known as Indian ice cream, um, which I believe is suksham. But you can use um, uh, tools made from plants such as fireweed. You can make a whip um, and you mix you can mix it with the flowers of a fireweed or a sweeter berry and mix it up. It's it's quite foamy. And the it's like the bitter from the soap berry and the foam from the soap berry and then the sweet from whatever you've added for sweetener. In the contemporary as well, you can add white sugar. But it's a very it's a very delicate, um, it's a really delightful little dessert, which again, as Medi is saying, is is actually really rich in nutrients. And soap berry um, has quite a quite the range. And it is um, used for different purposes in different areas. But I know in the Silks region, it's you can make the Indian ice cream, which is really good. Okay, now I'm getting hungry. There is a lot more to talk about with Mehdi and Dana, and we'll do just that when we come back. Canada's local gardener just got even better. Flora and Fauna, a new e-digest coming weekly. Go to localgardener.net to find out more information. That's localgardener.net. Some other plants that you mentioned, they weren't all edible, were they? No, no, not necessarily. But they are all useful historically and in the contemporary. For example, Oregon grape, you actually can eat the berries. Um, They're quite sour but they're actually they're, they're quite good and they're, they're more of a food that you would eat when there wasn't as much around or just to supplement it was more of a supplementary food there's also like kinnikinick berry which is uh, again you can eat the berries but they're mm-hmm. primarily for um, bears which is also why it's called bear berry certain things like choke cherry as well as the snowberry as well as the taller than grape like those those can be used for for tool making you can use a lot of these species for weaving as well as um, the sagebrush really important for smudging i don't know if you've ever smelled big sagebrush it's it's incredible it's so it's so calming it, it's so beautiful um, we have a lot of that growing naturally around the space um, and we also incorporated some more into our space as well either either it does have a use in terms of a harvest a tool or it's there for medicine as well 
For example, we have some scarlet gilia in the garden, which is a biennial. It flowers every other year with these brilliant, brilliant red flowers. It's so gorgeous. And it's in the space for pollinators, but it's also, it can be used as a laxative. Everything in the garden has a purpose. Everything in the garden has a goal or there's a reason it's there. You mentioned also that it's all overlooked by three large ponderosa pines. What, What would be the purpose of the ponderosa pines? I, you know, I don't honestly, I don't honestly know. Ponderosa pine can be used for tool making, et cetera, but that's the ethnobotanical use of this species um, is something that I'm aware of, but I'm not, I'm not an expert of. Again, I'm not a solicitation okay. member, but those ponderosa pines for our garden in particular provide really important shade and they're a really important habitat for a lot of bird species. Yeah. I don't think our garden would be thriving as well as it's thriving without those pines. I have the benefits of time in Google, and here's what I've discovered about ponderosa pines. They have developed to survive a wildfire every five or ten years with their thick bark. They are quite drought-resistant, and indigenous peoples, though I don't know if the Salix are among them, used the seeds and the sweet inner bark for food, and they chewed the pitch, which was also used as a salt. They made a tea from the needles to treat coughs and fevers, and ponderosa pines were used as firewood, and the trunks were carved to make canoes. Why would you want to attract the bears? Well, they're already there. (laughs) Um, And also a lot of these species require going through a bear's digestive system in order to properly propagate. I mean, encouraging the bears to eat these species also encourages their propagation. Bears are just as much part of the cultivation process as, as we are in a lot of senses. So there are the four food chiefs within the Silks Nation are bitterroot, salmon, bear, and Saskatoon berry. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did include Saskatoon berry within our garden as well. Um, we didn't include bitterroot. We, we couldn't find a place to sustainably, you know, we don't want to be pulling species out from their native habitat to include in our garden for mm-hmm. our own purposes. Almost all of our plants that we acquired, we got from Sagebrush Nursery in, in Soyuz who were instrumental in providing a lot of these species, either from a start or a a large, like a one gallon pot or from seed. Nothing that was within the garden was was taken from its native habitat and and plucked into ours. And bitterroot is something that I don't think you can really commercially purchase. Yeah, I just want to say bears are a very important part of the ecosystem Mm -hmm. and also the culture in the region. So they're extremely important and they contribute to the ecosystem. So not necessarily in the garden, probably it's a very small garden, so it's not attracting the bears, it's not like one of the objectives, but in the nature, these berries that are providing food for the bears and sustaining the bears are extremely important and they need to be protected. So we just wanted to highlight that having these berries that are important in this region and native to this region, why these are important. So not only important for the people, but also very important for some of the animals that are thriving in the region. Of course, there's my Eurocentric background showing. Bears are an important part of the ecosystem. The Kinnikinnik isn't to attract bears so much as just to feed them. And of course, this is a demonstration garden. Now, another plant that you mentioned was um, wood rose. There are the rose hips for that? 
yeah, the wood roast be quite medicinal um, for making teas, etc. I think I think a larger reason that we planted the wood rose was for pollinators. We really want a dynamic canopy. We have the canopy from the pine, but we also wanted canopy from choke cherry, from the rose, etc. And rose rosewood is also great for tool making and and also easy to establish. It was a, it was one of the species also that you can find around the research station, which was another way that we would decide on certain species. Showy milkweed is a really beautiful wildflower that's around the station as well. And so those would be probably the only species that if they were already established at the station that we would take seed and spread that around in the garden. And wood rose is one of those species that you can see just growing between hedgerows. We're really close to some kind of a canyon space. And so as it descends to that canyon space, you can see quite the diversity of species. That was a lot of the inspiration for certain things that we selected. I don't drive. I don't have my license. Um, So I was biking to work from Penticton, which is about an hour. But I would bike on like this, the Kettle, Kettle Valley Railway Trail. It's really beautiful. It's on the Penticton Okanagan Indian Band Reservation. And there's just so many beautiful native flowers that you'll see coming through. I saw like pink flocks and then also some scarlet gilias. And so just taking inspiration from what was all of the indigenous species that were persisting, that were continuing to be present in that area. What about ornamental aspects of gardening? Was that a consideration at all for people in the past? It was definitely a consideration for our garden mm-hmm. in the sense that we did want it to look really pretty. And it does. A lot of the species, all of the species, they're so well suited to the environment. They're mm-hmm. so dynamic. They're so they're so brilliant. Like the especially the scarlet gillia is one of my favorite. It's just it looks red fireworks that shoot mm-hmm. off if you're if you're lucky enough to see them, my goodness. And yeah, just making sure that it was a really like pleasant and calming space to be in for guests that are arriving to, I hope hopefully to be inspired either to take some seeds from the garden and incorporate them into their own garden spaces or to start projects, like-minded projects of their own. Plus aesthetics was definitely something that we kept in mind. It wasn't just, it wasn't just to establish these species. It was also to create a really welcoming space and a space mm-hmm. that people would be happy to spend time and to learn and to share. Ornamental gardening. That's the kind of gardening I know. I'm learning vegetable gardening these days, but I come from a world of flowers and trees and different ways of justifying seeking beauty to people who don't get the love affairs some of us have with these. You mentioned goldenrod. What what do you do with goldenrod? That was definitely a uh, goldenrod's definitely a species that was selected for pollinators. I believe swallowtail and bear's hair streak and again, also, it's it's brilliant. It's bright yellow. If I can add that, uh, it's it's very pretty. So <laughs> I, I just was uh, there this morning and the flowers are gorgeous yellow. Mm-hmm. But it has also a medicinal use. So they use mm-hmm. it for the treating tuberculosis as well as diabetes and liver diseases. It is very, very, very medicinal. For asthma is useful. For arthritis is, is useful. So mm-hmm. it's very, very medicinal plant. and But it's also very beautiful when it's uh, in the flower. You mentioned Hagor rock crest. Do I have that correct? Hobel's rock crest. Okay. Um, it's just, um, that was one that I saw on my commutes on my bike. It's just a native, a very small little native brassica, which is edible. But that was definitely, there was just something that we saw again, growing around the area and we're like, great, throw it in, increase the biodiversity for sure. 
or the yarrow, for example, unbelievably medicinal. There's so many things you can do with yarrow. A lot of things that were around the perennials, like the Saskatoon berry, the chokecherry, etc. We wanted to make sure that there were self-seeding native species. So the Hobel's rockcress is one of those, which again, it's, it's, it's edible, but it was more something that we knew if we established it would just spread itself around the garden. If we gave it the space... Holbel's rockcress is a handsome plant that stands upright and blooms in early spring. After blooming, the stem holds up long, thin pods of seeds. It's quite pretty. We're going to take one more break, then we'll come back and finish talking to Dana and Medi about the Indigenous Demonstration Garden at Summerlin, B.C. Find out what's growing on. Follow Canada's Local Gardener magazine on social media. Explore the colourful world of gardening with us. Discover our special offers and take part in our online contests. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Get growing with us. You mentioned that wood rose in particular is great for making tools out of. Are you aware of any kind of tools that they used in cultivation? No, not off the top of my head. But each of these, all of these species have such a diversity of use. Medicinal, tool making, their edibility. One species I would have loved to establish, but it was difficult to find. It was it was something, again, we rather than pull it out from its native environment to throw into our garden, we thought, uh, we'll just enjoy it in its native ecosystem and see one day maybe we can try to, to cultivate it there. It was pink flocks which when it flowers, phenologically, it can indicate that certain species are ready. Other species like the salmon are spawning. They're like, it's like a floral clock. It's just these species can have just a laundry list of, of uses, which a lot of them we are aware of, but in the process of establishing this garden, became increasingly aware of the diversity of ethnobotanical use for all of these species. And of course, providing habitat and providing a food source for pollinators and other insect species so and birds. I understood immediately what Dana meant when she said floral clock. I think of when my neighbor told me not to prune my roses until the forsythia was in bloom. It all has to do with phenology, but calling it a floral clock rings so true to me. I googled it to see what others had to say about it, but I got stuck on Niagara Falls and their floral clock. Now, if you've never seen the Niagara Parks floral clock, it is a big round shape of carpet bedding to form the face of a clock. Then there are giant hour and minute hands in the center, and yes, it works as a clock telling time. You may have seen one elsewhere in the world because they are bizarrely popular. There's one at the International Peace Garden that straddles the border of Manitoba and North Dakota. Now, I know I don't get to vote on the definition of words and phrases, but if I did, I would absolutely vote for Dana's floral clock. What are your next steps with regard to the garden? We're working on a website so we can mm-hmm. have more information about these plants uh, on the website and then a QR code beside the signs, uh, the artwork that uh, uh, Dana mentioned. So people mm-hmm. can actually listen to the native language pronunciation as well as learn about these plants and important of those for the indigenous people. So that's one of the next steps, as well as we continuously we're working on the garden, maintaining the garden and introducing new species. Uh, for example, this year we added nodding onion uh, as well as a uh, woody thyme and the one-eyed Susan. So we added in that uh, zero scale. 
uh, area. Uh, so we're constantly improving and we have presentations, we have demonstration uh, visits, and we encourage people to kind of do this similar work and learn about these plants and the importance of them. Mehdi mentioned some plants I either wasn't familiar with or didn't know were native to Canada, so I emailed him recently since Google wasn't giving me any answers. They planted black-eyed Susan rubecchia herta, which is gloriously native in many parts of Canada. Nodding onion, or Allium cernuum, is a lovely little plant that also comes from Canada. The woolly thyme, though, Thymus pseudolanuginosus, is native to the Old World. Medi notes that it grows well in BC and they planted it as a ground cover to suppress weeds. I guess they had to do something to calm the weeds without Dana and Kyle there. I had to find out what Dana is doing now that her internship is over. I'm currently living and working in Wissanic Territory, uh, Victoria. I'm a gardener um, and I'm still maintaining an Indigenous food plant garden actually here. Um, I work in an alternative school, but my heart is really, really, really in that project, um, in that garden. And I care about it a lot. And I had such a wonderful time establishing it. And Mehdi is one of the best bosses I've ever had. And so I definitely am going to, he can't get rid of me. I'm still going to be involved. I'm actually going to be sending him a little list of species that I would like established in the future. And I'm hoping to, the next time I'm visiting the Okanagan to visit my family and spending some time there, that I can come and just do some weeding, do some caretaking. Kyle Clark, the other student who's working on this project, also really invested in the project. This was a real springboard um, for myself and for Kyle for our our careers in working with Indigenous food plants and in, in, in restoration efforts and as young scientists. I'm still working on indigenous food plant gardens here in Victoria. I do a lot of restoration work on on Trial Island. I'm working with a lot of organizations. And Kyle is working with Pepepkin Hayout, which is an indigenous-run, Wissanic-based ecological restoration group that is going around so many areas in Wissanic territory and reestablishing the native species. I'm going to be involved with this garden as long as it's there. Wow, these guys are amazing. It sounds like we should have had Kyle here to tell us more, maybe in the future. I have learned so much through our conversation, and I'm sending out my most heartfelt thanks to Mehdi and Dana for making time to talk to me. You guys were awesome. I also want to thank Yasmin Conception, our digital media manager, for putting this together, and Carl Thompson, our art director, and Ian Leet, our president. The four of us are working so hard to create flora and fauna for you every week. And I want to thank the Government of Canada for the funding to make this possible. (laughs) 